the situation in Ukraine sort of, since it put energy security back in front of governments, I think it's now pretty widely accepted that natural gas is going to play an important role going forward. If for no other reason, then we've now just put, you know, three decades worth of infrastructure on the ground (laughs) worth hundreds of billions of dollars to get that energy security. Because we're talking about the energy transition, it seems to me that more people accept the fact that natural gas is going to play a very big role in whatever that transition looks like. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to our Smarter Markets Summer Playlist 2023, where we're sitting down with our special guests midway through the year to talk about where we are and where we might be and need to be heading next. It's our Beach Reading in a Podcast. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Susan Sackmar, visiting professor at the University of Houston Law Center and author of Energy for the 21st Century, Opportunities and Challenges for LNG. We'll be catching up with Susan on where the LNG market and industry is now following the tumultuous events of the past year. Hello, Susan. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hi, David. Thanks very much for uh, for having me back. Oh, anytime. I've really been looking forward to once again talking all things LNG with you, but I can't help but point out that the title of your book has proved prescient as LNG is becoming more and more the energy for the 21st century. And since the last time you were here, an extraordinarily warm winter and U.S. LNG exports got Europe through the energy crisis it experienced following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And now LNG is central to conversations around energy supply and energy security. And I know you were recently at LNG 2023 conference in Vancouver. So I'm curious for your takeaways from the conference. What was the conversation there like? And in particular, how is the industry now seeing itself and its place in the world? Yeah, well, uh, this so LNG 23 took place in Vancouver, and this is the IGU's triannual event. So I think the last time they had held it was pre-COVID 2019. This event was actually supposed to be in Moscow. No, actually not Moscow, excuse me, St. Petersburg. Even better than wow. Moscow, St. Petersburg. And of course, that got changed and it got moved to Vancouver, but it was a a great event. So many of the people remarked how nice it was to be back, you know, at the IGU event in person. And there's something to be said about in-person interactions. Of course, you and I are interacting just fine on a podcast. (laughs) But when you go to these, one of the the benefits of actually going to an LNG event is you can gauge the mood, right? It's hard to gauge the mood sometimes just from news media, or if you don't see anybody. So, you know, needless to say, the mood in Vancouver was very good (laughs) because we're (laughs) coming off of, you know, a great 2022 for the LNG industry. So, you know, the Chenier team was in Vancouver and the Chenier CEO, Jack Fusco, has said 2022 was a transformative year. Mm -hmm. So the Chenier team was there and they were in a very good mood. 
The Semper team was there. They had uh, you know, recently announced uh, FID in Port Arthur. So Semper was in a very good mood. And then there's always sort of new people that start to emerge or projects that have been on the back burner, but you're now seeing them take a, you know, the center stage. And so the one that springs to mind is Mexico Pacific. So Mexico Pacific CEO was on center stage in one of the opening sessions, and she was fantastic. And that project seems to be moving along. And so it was great to see that. So great to see sort of projects come up through the fold as they're approaching FID. You start to see people more active in events. So that was great to see. And then, of course, we were in Canada. So I want to give a shout out to Canada. And I met a lot of Canadians. And, you know, needless to say, Canada, I think there's uh, certainly a feeling that like Canada could have done more with its LNG. So there's a little bit of, you know, playing second fiddle to the U.S. in terms of LNG projects. But some good news out of Canada, I would say, is, you know, we're already starting to hear questions about phase two for LNG Canada. So LNG Canada is about 85% complete. So that's getting, you know, getting to the finish line. But you're already hearing questions now about phase two for that project, which I think most people, or at least the people in Vancouver thought that's probably will happen because that's where the profits really start to kick in are in, you know, on the subsequent phases. So it was good to see, you know, that bit of good news, I, th- I think, coming from Canada. Yeah, and I, I'm so glad you brought up the the sense that it's hard to gauge the mood of a conference without being there. And I'm, I wasn't able to attend, but I have colleagues that did and were there with you. And one of the things that they remarked upon was just how many people were there. And I think, I don't know if it was the coming back after COVID, people wanted to be there, whether it was a strong year for the industry, whether there's lots of new projects, as you said, going forward. But it sounded like it was a, a pretty big collection of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, yes, almost everyone was there. And um, in fact, I wasn't even sure I was going to go because it was conflicting with some summer plans I had. But so many people asked if I was going that I said, oh, I better go. <laughs> it seems to be the place to be. And then, of course, it helped that it was in Vancouver, which is a beautiful city on the water. Um, right. So it helps. And it was a beautiful venue. I think the nicest venue I've ever been to, and I've been to a lot of venues, but this one was a beautiful venue right on the water. And IGU and and Canada had done a great job of um, showcasing local artists, showcasing uh, indigenous peoples. So I think they did a really nice job with the event. That's great. And I want to come back and ask you about some some of the investment that's occurring. But maybe before we dive into that, I was curious for your opinion of how are you seeing the industry and the LNG market today, you know, specifically following the tumultuous events of last year, what I believe you said the, the team from Chenier referred to as a, a transition or transformative year. Transformative, transformative year. Transformative year. That's, that's the right <laughs> word. Where are we now? So where are we now? Well, I would say, you know, I have pinned on my Twitter and I don't know if it'll, I'll, I'll maybe leave it pinned until this comes out. I, uh, a lot of reports have come out during the summer. One is the Giganol annual report mm. and Giganol always does a summary of contracts. So I have pinned to my Twitter, the, you know, screenshots of, you know, three or four pages of contracts that were signed in 2022. And I put that up as just a reminder to folks, because, of course, if you're in the industry and you have a project and investors, there's now more investors than ever. And everyone is always pushing for more, 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 more. 
right? We need more projects. We need more projects. We need more contracts. We need more contracts. And I stepped back and said, well, what did we do in 2022? Look at all these contracts. A lot of contracts and deals were signed in 2022. It was a transformative year. Three projects, I think at least three projects took FID in 22. Three took FID in 23. I think we'll probably get, my guess is we'll get maybe two more in 2023. Maybe two or three more Hmm. projects will take FID in 2023. So that's a lot in a short period of time. And so I guess I would say the industry should give itself credit for not wasting a crisis. Nobody wasted this crisis. So I think that's sort of the good news, right? So where are we now? I feel like we, even though I think we will get a couple more projects and we're heading into now gas tech is the next big event in September, but I think we're in a period of maybe let's just let it sit for a bit. You know, now these projects that took FID need to get built. So those need to be phased into construction cycle. There's still talks about labor shortages, material shortages, costs are still high. So I think we're in a little bit of a let's now let's build what we've said we're going to build. And probably a few more projects will take FID. Uh, And then we have to build all this new supply out. And in the meantime, you know, we need to bring on more importers. So there's still import infrastructure that's getting built around the world. So I think the industry is in a very good place, and now we just need to let it settle in. Sort of a taking stock, you know, in the international development world, there's a taking stock period. <laughs> so that sounds good. A taking stock period where, all right, now we have to start building all these projects we've we've promised to build. And just to put those numbers in context, I believe you said it was three took FID last year, three projects taking FID this year, maybe a couple more. What's a what's a more typical year recently? Well, I went back. So the IEA also released their annual report. And that was sort of a reminder that uh, 2019 was a a record year for LNG FIDs. And I I can't, you know, I would have to dig up the number. But 2019 was a record year. And then we had 2020, 2021, sort of a COVID year where not much happened. I think one project took FID in 2021. And then, you know, three, 2022, three so far in 2023. And so that's a lot of capacity to bring out. It Plus, is. you know, Qatar, their Northfield expansion is coming. So I would say that's a lot of capacity to bring on. We're now firmly in the big second wave of new LNG projects, right? right. We had the first wave with US LNG. We're firmly now in the second, and it's going to be a big second wave, right? We have also Golden Pass coming on stream. That's been a long time in the making. So I think we have a lot of, uh, just a lot of capacity coming in the next years. I, so the IEA gave a number of 250 BCM a year of liquefaction by the end of 2030. Mm. So in the next seven years, a huge wave of supply is coming on the market. Right. And one of the big transformations in the transformative year that was, I was looking at the Giganel annual report as well. And it was interesting, I think, Overall, the U.S. is like now maybe in the top three LNG exporters. And in terms of LNG exported under short-term or spot contracts, it's far and away the largest exporter. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, with the U.S. now being the leading exporter of LNG on any given day, how is that changing the LNG market? And how is it changing the U.S. natural gas industry? Well, I think the U.S. is firmly... um 
we're we're top three, maybe number one. <laughs> we'll surpass Qatar, I think, uh, or Qatar may surpass us when their expansion plans are finalized. But being in the top two is pretty extraordinary. And what it's really done is it's introduced U.S. LNG with Chenier being the model, introduce a whole new model for LNG, which was a flexible, not destination specific model. And that, I think, has really changed the game and continues to change the game as more supply from the U.S. comes on because it's all flexible. It's all destination free, meaning buyers can send this LNG anywhere in the world. So that opens up a much bigger supply picture for traders, you know, and all, you know, off takers, but also for traders. So it just makes it a more dynamic market because you still have the Qatari LNG, which by and large is a little more fixed destination. So we're still going to have that. Uh, somebody at, in, in Vancouver, somebody from Shell said, you know, let's just sort of cut the market into thirds. So you'll have a third sort of Qatari longer term destination specific LNG. You'll have a third U.S. flexible destination. It can go anywhere in the world. And, you know, a third, uh, you know, dedicated to spot. Right. So that may be where we, we end up, roughly a sort of a, a market split in thirds that way. That's interesting. And I wanted to come back, you know, you talked a little bit about a lot of the investment and the various projects that are taking FID this year and last. And I wanted to ask you, like, overall, you know, there's still a lot of infrastructure that's needed to scale the LNG market to absorb, you know, these 250-odd BCM that'll be coming on through 2030. Where do you think we are in terms of, you know, not just the liquefaction, but the regasification and the tankers? You know, you sit on the board of Flex LNG, like from a more holistic view of the market, where do you think we're progressing well and where do you think maybe we need to do a little bit more? The industry has done a great job. So we're progressing well, clearly in you know, supply. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so clearly the, the, the producers and the suppliers of LNG, which tend to be the big IOCs and the, you know, the big NOCs. Okay. Clearly they they've upped their game and they're now committed to a lot more projects. Now we have to build, you know, the downstream markets, right. The importing infrastructure. And I think that's always a bit tricky in terms of, you know, capacity of importers. And so you know, the world is getting down to we've we haven't run out. Of, you know, the big LNG buyers historically, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Europe now. So Europe now is a baseload buyer. So the IEA report pointed out that Europe is now a new source of baseload and LNG accounted for 40 percent of Europe's gas consumption in the first half of 2023. Wow. So, Even this right, year, yeah. so that's a so that's a pretty big statistic. So Europe now potentially is a big source of baseload supply where it wasn't before Ukraine. But there still are, you know, a number of countries that are looking to import but have struggled. So Vietnam, Philippines, Pakistan is the perennial one that keeps coming up in the news, Bangladesh. And you know, a challenge for these countries is LNG is a somebody on Twitter said to me, you know, LNG is a rich person's fuel. Mm. And I said, well, it's it, true. It's, it, you know, LNG was always a bespoke product. And now we're trying to turn it into a commodity in a way, but it has to be something that's affordable for the developing world, including India, China. It has to be a product that's then affordable if we want it to go around the world. So we're still in a little bit of growing pains 
I would say we're in maybe the, you know, still the second inning of the globalization of LNG. You know, inning one, the first 10 years, U.S. LNG and Chenier. We're now in maybe inning two, where now there's another wave of supply coming on. You know, we have at least three more decades. <laughs> so I think we're in the early stages. And the next stage that we're going to see is, you know, prices have come down significantly off the highs from, you know, 21, 22. So now we're going to see lower prices, which theoretically should bring on more buyers. And you're starting to see that now. So I think we're going to continue to see that. I think the supply will be there and we'll continue to see more buyers, but there are going to be bumps in the road, right? And, and everybody's looking to winter now or what's going to happen this winter. You know, if it's a really cold winter and Europe depletes its storage, they may draw more LNG and what's going to happen in Asia and China. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of wild cards, but I think we'll enter a phase where we'll start to see more buyers if prices stay moderate, we'll start to see more buyers come in. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about how is that buying being accomplished? Because, you know, and specifically, how are the contracting and trading practices changing, if at all? You know, from the news flow, it seems that Asia and Japan in particular has been very focused on securing LNG supplies, while Europe is remaining reliant for the most part on short-term cargoes. Maybe that's not right, you know, but that's kind of the sense of it. Yeah. And I'm curious if that's what you're seeing, like how, how are these being contracted at this point and is it varying by country? Well, I think it's varying by country and by need. So there's been some very large, I think China and Qatar signed the longest ever contract, 27 years, mm. right? For, uh, I'm, you know, I'm assuming baseload supply for China. So it's, it varies depending on the country and the energy security concerns. So I would say, you know, Japan and Asia have always been more concerned about energy security because they, they don't have any really indigenous sources of energy. So that's always been the number one concern. And the reason why they were, so Japan has always been willing to pay a higher premium for a bespoke product, which was LNG, just because they brought that product to their country for baseload power supply. So that's a different need. And so I think you're still seeing those contracts those contracts make a lot of sense, right? If you know your your need, why not sign a long-term contract at some price linked to oil, some slope that you think will be reasonable over time? And then you, you are seeing... So now Germany has signed quite a few contracts in Europe. I know Europe gets a bad rap for not signing enough contracts. <laughs> but you know, Europe is, a, I guess, a reluctant buyer of gas. They were not really destined to be a big buyer of gas prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I think they're a bit of a reluctant buyer, but clearly have recognized now there is an energy security component that they need to focus on. And so Germany has been doing the heavy lifting in terms of signing contracts and putting in new regas infrastructure. And so I think Germany's done a decent enough job doing that. And Europe, I think, might be willing to take its chances a bit. Hmm. They've now, you know, they've filled, they're at, I think their storage is now at 85% capacity. So they're pretty well stocked up for the winter and they're taking some risk. <laughs> if it's a really cold winter and they need a lot of gas, but something happens in Asia, they may have to pay higher for that gas. But, you know, that's, I guess, the risk, the risk analysis you do as a country or as a utility, depending on the gas buyer. Right. And I found it really interesting, your point about 
you know, some people remarking LNG is a, a rich country's fuel in that a lot of the LNG that went to help out Europe last year, it wasn't new supply. A lot of it was supply that otherwise would have gone to other countries like Pakistan and some of the other Asian countries. And while Japan as a wealthy country has been out securing supplies, China as a wealthy country securing supplies, are these other less wealthy countries are they just deciding that, well, maybe we need a different fuel, maybe we need coal, maybe we need something else to secure our energy needs? Well, so the, the I think part of the challenge for the LNG industry going forward is these other developing countries all have indigenous coal. <laughs> so uh, Pakistan, China, India, Bangladesh, Vietnam. <laughs> so these are five big potential importing countries, but they all have indigenous coal. And so I think natural gas does have to compete with coal on price. Sometimes it can, sometimes it can. So coal had a record year. Coal had a transformative year right. in 2022, right? I mean, it was a very big year for coal in part because, yes, those countries did ramp up coal. So I think you will see coal ramp up if natural gas can't come to sort of an equilibrium price where suppliers are happy, buyers are happy. And um, it's sort of a, you know, a meeting of the minds. And I think we'll, we'll get to that point, but we're not probably there yet. And we'll have some bumpy years getting to that point. There'll be ups and downs with prices, I think, for the next five years, probably. Yeah. And for, for making progress on carbon emissions and climate, one of the, the most direct routes is getting coal out of power generation and using natural gas instead, which cuts the carbon emissions in half. And you know, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Europe's energy crisis, there seemed like there was a lot of debate around, is natural gas, is LNG a transition fuel in the energy transition, or is it not a transition fuel, and what is a transition fuel, and what have you. I'm kind of curious now, when you look at the industry and how it's viewed, is it more widely accepted, as you said, that LNG and natural gas are going to be with us for at least the next three decades? Or do you think that's still a subject of contention and debate? I think it's become just more accepted that natural gas is going to play a key role. And I think Ukraine, the, the situation in Ukraine sort of, since it put energy security back in front of governments, mm -hmm. I think it's now pretty widely accepted that it will play an important role going forward. And if for no other reason, then we've now just put, you know, three decades worth of infrastructure on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> worth right. hundreds of billions of dollars to get that energy security. So I think it's acknowledged that it is a, a fuel that's here. So I'm, I'm reluctant, you know, it, my chapter one of my book 10 plus years ago <laughs> was, you know, the role of natural gas. Is it a, a bridge fuel, you know, a, just a dirty fossil fuel or, you know, a transition fuel? That was sort of the, the debate at the time. Right. And I think now people are probably more referring it to as a, I guess it's called more of a transition fuel because we're talking about the energy transition. But it seems to me that more people accept the fact that natural gas is going to play a very big role in whatever that transition looks like. Yeah. And it seems like actions speaking louder than words. Well, as you said, Europe's been kind of uh, beaten on for not signing more longer term contracts. They have been building regasification. Yeah. facilities, Germany in particular. So they're certainly putting the infrastructure in place to use it for quite some time. Right. Absolutely. But I'm glad you brought up your book because I wanted to ask you, you know, a decade in, decade since writing it, 
I was curious, how have the events of the past year shaped and potentially changed your thinking on energy in the 21st century and the opportunities and challenges for LNG? You don't have to give me the whole new book, but maybe a a chapter. The the book I have yet to write. (laughs) Exactly. Feel free. Feel free to brainstorm. Well, I I was thinking about this sort of where where have we been? Where are we? Where are we going? And I sort of just thought of it as a puzzle. So LNG, in my mind, went from being, you know, a 50-piece puzzle to now maybe a 1,000-piece puzzle. So the complexity in the industry has increased significantly. So now that 1,000-piece puzzle is just a lot harder to think about all the pieces and how they all come together, right? Whereas it used to be a fairly easy industry. It was a niche industry with just a handful of players. Now there's many players, many dynamics at work. And so I think it's just become a more complex, more dynamic industry, which gives rise to a lot of opportunities, but also more challenges. And so far, like always, the industry has always navigated those challenges, right? So I'm, I'm certain things will be fine going forward, despite, you know, bumps here and there. And uh, so I would just say it's just become a more interesting, dynamic puzzle to put together. And uh, it, it makes things interesting, always interesting, right? Yes, I could write another book if I have the no pen intended energy <laughs> to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like an industry that's developing and in some ways maturing, becoming more complex. Becoming more complex and maturing, absolutely. And so we're in, so like I said, I think we're going to have several decades of that maturing phase. And I was curious, just to bring it back to the conference, are there people attending who you haven't seen in the past, like parts of the industry that weren't there before or people coming in from outside the industry? I'm just curious if LNG going from niche to more mainstream, you're getting a different groupings of people than you may have in the past. Oh, yes. I'm glad you asked that question. So in Vancouver, so before, um, and, and one of the reasons why I, I love Twitter is it is a way to meet a whole new group of people. Hmm. So before Vancouver, I'm on a Twitter sort of chat group with all the Canadians, and they're mostly focused on, and they're all investors. So a couple of big surprises in the last 10 years. Now there's a large retail investor base in LNG, and this Canadian group is really seems to be invested more in the Canadian natural gas producers. Hmm. So they're looking to LNG as outlets for the producers that are producing gas, and where's all that gas going to go, Right. And so that's sort of their focus. So that's like a whole new group. And I connected with quite a few of those people in Vancouver, and that was an interesting group. And then tons of retail investors. If you follow my Twitter feed, sometimes I get dragged through the mud of some of these projects. <laughs> right? I mean, I'll post an article and then I'm just, oh, you can take me off this chat now, guys. <laughs> Right? There's just a lot of folks following LNG and natural gas. Thousands more than there used to be. It used to be just only in in you know inside industry people follow this. And now there's this seems to be this whole world of retail investors and other investors following it. So that's a good thing though. I think it's a good thing for the industry. Oh, yeah, I think it's definitely a great thing to grow that community, you know, as we often talk about it, it, it impacts everyone and what yeah. we're trying to do. So it's nice for everybody to have a better understanding of it, be able to invest in it, be able to discuss it. And like to thank you for a lot of the work you do in kind of giving people that access to what otherwise would be inside baseball. 
in a way. Well, <laughs> I try, I try, but you know, again, as the puzzle has become more complicated, it's it's hard to it gets harder to keep up with everything because there's so much more out there now, right? Right. And that is one reason why I do like Twitter because I get a lot of direct messages of things I missed, quite frankly, from retail investors sending me articles. I'm like, well, I didn't see that one because. You know, there's now a thousand articles to look at. Right? <laughs> and there's 24 hours in the day and it can't all be LNG. It can't, well, most of it is. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not all LNG. But so I wanted to thank you for sharing your time with us today. Um, you know, on this series, because many people are taking a little time off to mm -hmm. uh, enjoy the summer, enjoy the time with family and friends, we do like to think of this series as a little bit more like uh, providing some beach reading or beach listening for people as they're out of the office. And of course, your book should be on the list, even though it's been out for a decade, it's still very relevant. But I'd also like you know to ask you, what's on your beach reading list this summer? What's on your summer reading list? And could you share that with us? Sure. Well, I think the book that's probably top of my list, and it's a book that's already gotten a lot of uh, I think a lot of people are already reading it, but it's Material World by Ed Conway. And uh, he looks at six raw materials that are shaping our world, uh, sand, salt, iron, copper, oil, and lithium. So a lot of the materials that are in the news. And so he's written a book about it. I haven't started the book yet, but I think that looks like a, a good book. And like I said, it's a it's a book that's gotten a lot of attention already. So I imagine a lot of energy folks are already on the beach reading that. Actually, I have a lot to read. So in the summer, I like to also catch up with all of these reports that we re mentioned. Okay. So you know, I've given them all sort of the the Washington read, which is <laughs> you know the quick read, looking up highlights. But I'll go through all of the reports that have been issued in the last month. So the IEA just issued their global gas security review for the third quarter. IGU issued their annual report. Giganel issued their annual report. And then the Gas Exporting Countries Forum issued their uh, quarterly report. And that's a great one that maybe a lot of people don't know about, but it's based out of Qatar and it's all the everyone but the U.S. basically. Mm. So I always read that because it gives a little different perspective on the gas market. And so I'll go through all of those too. And that's about a book size. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a that's a book size if I get through all those. And then there's always like books I pick up here and there. The ones at the airport? No. So actually I'm gonna mention this book um with a uh well, I don't know if it's a recommendation, but I'll tell you the story. It's called uh, The Greatest Song, and it's by Kevin Griffin. And how I came up with this book, I'm, so I'm in Napa where there's just tons of music and I'm walking down the street in Napa and I overhear somebody saying that Train is in town. And so at the last minute, I bought a ticket to go see Train and uh, because why not? And then warming up for Train is a band called Better Than Ezra, who I've never heard of and they were good. But one of the singers, uh, performers in Better Than Ezra is a guy named Kevin Griffin and he stands up on stage at this music, you know, this rock concert and says he's selling his book, <laughs> you know, at the merchandise table. <laughs> Usually it's like, I got my tapes in the back, you know, <laughs> but a book, and that's so, impressive. Right. And I'm like, who sells a book? Who, one, what musician writes a book and then sells it at the concert? <laughs> right. And so I said, well, that absolutely is a book I'm buying because I've been to a lot of concerts in my life and never once have I bought a book. And so I went to buy the book and then had him autograph it. 
but anyway, it sounds like a, a pretty, it's a fiction book and it's a pretty, it looks like a pretty light read. So I'm going to read uh, Kevin Griffin's The Greatest Song. Spark creativity, ignite your career and transform your life. That sounds like a lot. And the book is only about a quarter inch thick. So if I can do all that and only have to read, you know, a hundred pages, <laughs> that'll be time well spent. That's a win. That's a and, win. Uh, <laughs> I hope it's available online or in a, in a local bookstore. And I, you know, I don't know. also have to find them in concert. It might be highly collectible. I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. Thanks, Susan. Okay. Thank you, David. Have a great summer. Thanks again to Susan Sackmar, visiting professor at the University of Houston Law Center and author of Energy for the 21st Century, Opportunities and Challenges for LNG. Join us next week as we continue our summer playlist 2023 with our next special guest. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.